The Double MacGuffin Podcast with Henry Griffin and Jonathan Freilich. Two films each week on a theme. Settle back for the double feature. Hi, everybody. Welcome or welcome back to another episode of The Double MacGuffin, a podcast with Jonathan Freilich and myself, Henry Griffin, a uh, filmmaker, musician, and a filmmaker and professor. Uh, who get together every week and talk about a double feature. Uh, and it could either be, they could either be tightly thematically connected, they could be uh, ironically connected, randomly connected. And in fact, this week we picked two movies, uh, and the only rule was that they had to be 85 minutes maximum length. Because last week, uh, when, we, when we sort of talked about our comfort movies, both of us picked sort of period pieces that took place in different lands. And then I, in particular, picked a movie that was well over three hours long. And so I thought, why don't we this time go easy on ourselves and pick two movies that we could watch combined in less than three hours. And that was the only thing that connected them. And then, of course, now that we've watched them, there's all sorts of other connections. (laughs) Absolutely. Really, really how it is. so, Jonathan, why don't we start with your movie? Because the moment I, I came up with the limitation, I said, 85 minutes. And you said, oh, I got the movie right here. Yeah. And so you put Jean-Luc Godard's uh, first name, Carmen. I always, when, <laughs> whenever possible, I try to avoid pronouncing things in other languages. So right. right now, no, Car- Carmen. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, so t- would you tell us literally why, why you immediately knew this was the movie? Well, it's directed to it's 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 dedicated to the small film, and it has uh, trappings of things that people like him and Truffaut were always into, which is you know the short sort of uh, noir films uh, from from the period before that. In this particular monogram pictures, which of course shows up as his dedication in his first movie, Breathless, was a dedication of monogram pictures, and so. You know, honestly, my just full disclosure, my first limitation was let's pick movies that are less than 75 minutes long, because actually that's where you get all those monogram movies. That's where you get B movies and cheapies, things that were like really cranked out quickly yeah. low budget. And they barely made the limit of what qualified as a movie, which is about a feature film, which is about 70 minutes. Um, but it is true that this is a movie that harkens back not only to the movies that inspired his filmmaking career, but also to his early films, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, why don't you encapsulate for our audience who may or may not know much about Jean-Luc Godard, uh, what this movie is. It could be a plot summary or just exactly, how would you describe the movie? Uh, the movie is simultaneously a sort of take on Carmen, or the, 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 the story of the famous opera, of course, that Bizet made, uh, which has famous songs in it that show up everywhere, but is also a, a story that's spun out in many, many films like Carmen Jones and things like that has been done, done a number of ways, very popular opera. But uh, so this has trappings of that mixed with a sort of um, a strange kind of heist movie that is sort of smatter, that looks initially like a, a system for, um, for, getting money to make a another another separate movie that's going on within the movie but then it turns out that that movie is also really a put on in order to kidnap a, 
<laughs> a businessman. It's a, and this all goes on in an hour and 25 minutes, but it's very cool. You know? is, crime, is crime a front for filmmaking or vice versa? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I thought about, you know, Steven Soderbergh, who uh, returns to the same theme of heists again and again. He's made like four to seven heist movies. Says the reason that I... I, I've heard that he says that the reason he, he likes that is because filmmaking is always in and of itself a heist. It's always a caper that you're trying yeah. to pull off. Maybe television is in that way because you kind of get into some groove. It really is a capitalist business model. But uh, filmmaking, particularly the way Godard does it and did it, is always kind of irrational and anarchist in its approach. So no wonder it just is like, how the heck are we going to do this? Becomes the... Um, impetus for this case. So you see why this film is sort of autobiographical in its way. I yeah. mean, not to mention the fact that dude is in it. Yeah, that's right. He's in it and playing a very, very interesting character. He's come from himself. Of course, Godard with no, with no, no need to portray himself in a good light, runs himself as a lecherous uncle to an incredibly beautiful girl who's, who, 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 you know, who describes the lecherous relationship, which you see almost instantly. Godard is playing this uncle. He's playing himself, basically. He's Jean-Luc Godard, except he's not exactly himself, but he's holed himself up in an, in an insane asylum where he's pretending to be mentally ill to keep himself in there because he doesn't, you know, he's just trying to write and get sort of left alone. And yes, he's been crazy once a week or something to stay yeah. in there. <laughs> to stay in there, which is, a, you know, a really funny sort of whimsical item up the top. And so, you, you know, you have, you have Godard in there for being himself, who then is brought in out of the inside after, after she appeals to him to be able to use his apartment in order to make this heist movie. Which you you don't really see that that's what's going on initially. Initially, what you see is some very strange sort of heist going on in the bank, but you can't tell if it's if it's a, a movie in a movie or is it a bizarre play or is it something that's going on separately. Godard is not involved yet, but then she's she has approached him to try to she ha, you she have seen her approach him to use use his apartment. A very funny scene goes down with a lot of Godard type things. He shows he say, he suggests to her you can use my new film camera, which is a stereo. A, a tape stereo system that sits in there, you know, these are very funny things like that. And, uh, and the music, the film is saturated with music, of course, but, but anyway, yeah, Godard is, is Godard. And later he's brought in to help direct the movie. He starts doing his act sort of, uh, or not to direct, but he becomes part of putting together the movie, which then he almost pulls because he claims that the situation is too chaotic by the end of the movie. <laughs> he's proclaimed he can't direct it because it's too chaotic, which is, you know, really amazing scenario uh so I'm, I'm trying to think it has so many features in it that are that are that are really wonderful um uh well i mean you could always start i'll tell you what i'm a i'm one of those casual guitar fans right jean-luc yeah. guitar is sort of like he's sort of like uh, woody allen or john coltrane in the sense that a lot of people gravitate to his earlier most commercial work and so there's right. a lot of people who would who could have seen, you know, five or six Godard films, but they're all from 1960 to 1968. His sort of, you know, where he was doing his version of the French New Wave, um, and which he most famously said, uh, all you need to make a film is a gun and a girl or a girl and a gun. Mm -hmm. So he made all these movies like Breathless, A Band of Outsiders, and, you know, um, but then he sort of went off uh, in a less aesthetic and more political direction where he shook off a lot of his more casual fans 
And then again, you're the Godard guy in this conversation. I feel like in the eighties, he came back. This is a movie that sort of speaks more to his sixties movies than his seventies movies. Where do you place it in the whole catalog of his work? Right. Well, he's, I mean, in the, in that, in that particular way of looking at the biography, it's very interesting. So he, he had, if you look at it as breathless, which became so popular that he thought it was way too popular and tried to make an unpopular movie after that, you know, some somewhat in a Bob Dylan-esque type fashion, he thought it had gotten way out of hand, breathless. But then he made another ultra uh, popular movie and they all started to be very popular. But in 1968, of course, he made, he made Weekend and, and, and really in the end of the movie, he declares cinema dead by his own circumstance, by his own idea and decides to make Yes, I mean, if it decides it's Ziga, he's going to do these Ziga Vertov movies that are, that are, you could look at it as political. I, a lot of people demean those as though there's nothing going on, but if you've ever seen them, I think, I think most people would reconsider. They're actually pretty outstanding little films. In, in a very, they're, they're all very interesting. Let's put it this way. They're not, they, they can't be dismissed as, oh my God, those are, although, although it's popular to do that because you have a lot of people who are completely consumed by bond, of, you know, by band of outsiders, like you say. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's always rebellious those movies could vaguely be look called commercial but then could be called totally anti-commercial and you know he was choosing to break almost every rule that you ever saw in going into film previously until there was all set of new rules anyway in 68 you're right he switches this thing and starts making what to people is uh is you know sort of cataloging the you know, was becoming less popular in society, which is more and more Marxism and Maoism, things like that, very left-wing viewpoints that he's examining. I mean, I don't think he, I don't think he ever does anything, despite what people say, that is uh, political propaganda. They're more political examinations of propositions in, in his movies. But, but he, but then that stops. He was, he, he went making TV and then he returns to what he, what he, what he and, and, Neville, his his collaborator there, that in, that in this period, call his return to making commercial movies. So, Print on Carmen is at the beginning of what you would call his return to commercial movie making, <laughs> and so that's really the story. And, and you know, he's making commercial features again, as far as they're concerned. <laughs> and but you're right. I mean, it is sort of in memoriam for small movies, and it's uh, it's a small movie in its way. It's very simple. I mean, it, it, it takes place in big empty spaces without a lot of stuff in them. And uh, it really, even though it does play a lot of games, it's a, it's a quote unquote girl in a gun movie. And um, I was not, I might've seen this movie when I was younger. I sort of ran through a lot of European cinema, but it didn't stay with me. So to go back to it was really, or see it for the first time was really wonderful. And I, I recognized the woman, Marushka Detmers. This was her first film. Yeah, and, you know, I know her from another film that's even sort that's even more sort of notorious than this one. Do you know Marco Bellocchio's Devil in the Flesh? Nope, but I got to see it. Obviously, I mean that's a movie where you know um, I read somewhere that the the original actress in the Carmen role was Isabella Johnny, who left. Oh, for having a fight with Godard. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And who knows? It might have been. It's a Marushka Detmers has a very. Uh, fearless and explicit performance let's say that yeah. uh, she looks fantastic the movies kind of might be lit by Raoul Coutard who shot all the French New Wave movies I mean uh, the the young man young woman in this movie looks spectacular um, but she you know she goes even further in the world of like uh, like uh, in the 80s there was a kind of thing that the actresses could do in sort of kind of erotic caper films like that they couldn't have done in the 60s 
so when I think about um, this film or maybe the Betty Blue, the Jean-Jacques Benex movie, you're like, oh, okay. Um, But she's really the center of the movie, which is important for a movie based on Carmen, that you have some sort of like incendiary Femme fatale. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. The the ultimate femme fatale is Chris Carmen, and she's... And she really plays it up, and and it's just like the opera. She has there's two men, there's two sort of men there that are that she's that she's selecting by by interesting interesting means, and she tires of one, and and he sort of you know plays it going crazy about it at the end in in, in this mad way. The other thing that's interesting, I mean, you brought up Raúl Cotar. It's a beautiful shot movie. Raúl Cotar is one of the greatest. Yeah, or he was a groundbreaking cinematographer and one of, and really really fun to watch, especially because he can play. He's, we're talking about a cinematographer who started as a war photographer, right? It was recommended to something. He, and so a lot of his techniques are, are they're evident. By this time, they're very refined by the time of Prédon Carmen. But, it's, but, you, but the, the facility with which he can flip in between types of photography and slap them all together is really, is really snap them all together is really kind of striking, you know, really, really, really wonderful. But the other feature is music. And this is, there's two things that there's two things in Godard's late style, you're talking about the late style thing. And there's two things in late style. One is photography of water. This is something that is, gets to be more and more and more and more and more of his, in more and more of his movies. And uh, long stretches over water with other kinds of sound cut in or sound cut out, depending how you look at it. And the other feature here is music which is very, 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 very heavy player, but it's a very, very heavy player in all his movies, uh, you know, although he doesn't say much about it. But. Well, I really, I'm a sucker for any movie where people stop and perform music in the middle. Yeah. Particularly if it's kind of like, what? So, you know, what, like maybe someday you and I are going to do Oh Lucky Man. But yeah, this idea of the so. score is like being performed live, you know, and you're watching the performer sort of doing the movie where there's kind of a musical recourse, if you will, to it. Or I, I just love that. There's a movie last year called Woman at War that does the same thing. I just love it. So this film is intercut with the rehearsals and performance of a string quartet. Yes. And, 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 and that's kind of supplying the emotion. And as far as I, you know, I mean, Godard doesn't, so he he always says he doesn't know anything about music and and doesn't really talk about it much. But I think more particularly, he gets around the idea that it that it has to go in where 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 film can no longer speak anything, where the image can't speak. There has to be music. There's a recourse to music, and so he has this included in the shots, and you can see it. Okay, now that here's the how here's how this here's how this comes out or here's the emotional value of this is put in with some, it's all Beethoven. They're working on a Beethoven quartet through the whole thing. And he has some great shots of the quartet from above, from below, and they show up in the last scene and the camera will eventually sort of work its cuts by moving around again and ending up at the string quartet or moving away from it. You know, And, uh, and yes, I, I like the lucky man example because of course the, the, it turns out there's a tie in, you know, they have the, 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 there's one woman in the string quartet who is tied in cause she, uh, she's sort of connected or friends with, uh, uh, Joseph, the guy, one of, one of the, one of the lovers uh, that, that playing the sort of, uh, you know, simple minded soldier character in the, in the film um the other the other interesting things in the film are and as we said the, the relationship to the monogram things is that there's there's uh um 
illusions, not only illusions, because they, they it, it, like in Godard movies, in Godard movies, you, you're not left to figure it out. He tells you everything because it's similar to Brecht. Like, in other words, so you hear after a while that he's doing Dillinger, that, he, that Dillinger is the important is the important feature. They make some reference to Dillinger. And interestingly enough, if you ever see it, it's a good thing I would point all of our listeners out to Dillinger from 1945 with uh, Lawrence Tierney, which is a really um, uh, interesting early period movie. It's a lot of fun. It's, you know, a great, great film. And, uh, you know, and out of the Dillinger story, and of course, you know, you know, Dillinger, of course, big mythology because Dillinger was shot coming out of a movie theater. So filmmakers love this particular thing. And of course, the prohibition against depicting public enemy number one that went on until after the Second World War. You know, they didn't want you to depict them at all. And then, then, it, came, then it came about again. It's OK, we're going to make more and more movies depicting the bad guy. You know, uh, anyway, it's, it, it's wonderful. So, you know, so here you have these kind of little little sort of things that inch in that direction. Can I ask you I have one more music question? We sort of moved on from it. You would think for a movie that was inspired by Carmen and also kind of Carmen Jones, the Outer Premature movie, that the music would be from Carmen, but it's not. Why do you think he chose Beethoven? Okay, I think there's there's two things. I think there's something about string quartets and the idea of four and the sectionality of it. And the story, the story that's built, in other words, and he, and he, and, and because they're having a rehearsal as a string quartet, he can have explicit sort of um, cutting or emotional sectional things that are declared and also played out simultaneously in there. That, and I, I think that opera, when you run it straight as itself, I mean, in, in other words, I think that. I, the, okay, there's a thing with Godard that is uh, that he mastered that is way beyond what I see most filmmakers, which is that he can do a thing with with non-synchronous events on film better than I, I don't know anyone who's that adept at it. He's a master at this, at having a number of what look to be uncombinable features absolutely interwoven into a picture and so the idea of doing an op of using an opera is too synchronous it's too much like we're going to put on carmen and also use the music from carmen that's too much we're going to put on carmen and you have the music not from carmen <laughs> it would be a better place in my in my opinion it's better placed there aesthetically i can see why you know it's just it's i right. love that answer you know Godard, who's i mean it's hard for me to imagine that he's been in the same artistic period for 40 years, but he made that 3D film called Goodbye to Language that um, is the most asynchronous 3D movie ever made. Because yeah. every 3D movie has as its premise that you should put something in each eye so that when together they create this amazing experience. And Godard was the first guy who was like, well, you could also just put two different things in there. <laughs> right. He does this thing I've never seen in a movie. It was like, where you're basically you put on the glasses and then you're looking at two totally different images with your two eyes and i felt like somebody in the 1890s who was like running away because there was a train coming at me on the screen yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> how did you how you know and it has to be sort of like i mean you gave the bob dylan example of somebody who's uh, I, again i'm not a dylan expert either but it seems like his shape-shifting had a lot to do with feeling caught by people's expectations of what he was supposed to do yeah, it's, he would think of so Godard as well as like 
oh, you like that thing that I did? Well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Like that's that you've taken the fun out of doing it. If yeah. you like it, then you've sort of created this kind of capitalist circuit. I need the constant subversion. And that's why Godard remains so um, alive. You know, that he was, we talked about faces places in our early podcast and that's, you know, Godard is supposed to appear and, and is supposed to be the climax of the film. And of course he doesn't. Yeah. And you're like, well, do you ever stop subverting? Like, what happens at like breakfast? Do subvert breakfast? <laughs> can we get you know like? Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> no, I'm not. I honestly, I feel like I'm not going to show up if I have breakfast at the dark. Because then maybe then he then that's the only way he would. Yeah, right. he'll he'll make it. You didn't, and he'll yeah exactly. It'll probably be like that. That's a very interesting. I thought I thought a lot about the Varda thing that we did. Agnes Varda. So Henry's referring there to the faces places which we did, uh, which was a great. You know, last uh, Agnes Varda, Agnes was her last movie before she died. Uh, she died. Uh, but she has one since then. But yeah, yeah, uh, and um, but she spends a lot of time, and it's it's, it's striking there because everyone loves Agnes Varda in a way that that uh, I mean, people think Godard is a genius, and there's no doubt about that. But she does spend a lot of time in that movie going on about how how important the man is basically to their whole their whole scenario and it is very clear it's you know once you see once you see him i mean just the just the fact of the just the, it's, it's a strident confidence level in his filmmaking that you're like it's not even uh you know even when he's using other people's stuff where reflexivity or quotable quoting things in film is 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 used everywhere uh i don't think it you don't really see it with the the depth or integration or lack of, or, or I, it's not that he's unselfconscious about it. It's almost like, it's just like he's got so many phases or nuances to the idea of self-consciousness about it that he can express simultaneously. Those are, those I have a palette, the amount that it's, that it's obvious or not obvious or how he wants it to be. That's, that's a, that's a nuanced palette also, which is sophistication. It's a kind of an interesting thing, but the movie is just watchable. It's not only an intellectual feat. So I was going to say, we sort of have to wrap it up at this point at the end, just to be like, I think a lot of our audience has, maybe has heard of the film, but hasn't seen it. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's funny. It's short. It's watchable. It's very, it's very pleasant. It has like uh, sex and violence. Yeah, <laughs> it has a great. There's brioche. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, the brioche thing. I forgot about that. That's great too. Yeah, <laughs> it's just got. Uh, it really has. A, it kind of. It does a lot in the short amount of time, but it also definitely doesn't too much. It's very. Um, I wouldn't call it light entertainment in the way that you watch. You know, like. Uh, uh, my life to live or something where you know where it's just really effervescent those early french yeah are. it's definitely a middle-aged man's movie it does have a kind of lamentation for the way things used to be you know yeah. um uh but uh it was really a lot of fun i so um but it's just interesting that that's what you get when you pick a short film and let's why don't we move on to the one yeah. i chose let's with, do it because that's fantastic film too let's. and so i chose a, 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 a what you might call an animated film by the great czech surrealist uh, jan svankmeyer um before we start i can't remember jonathan did, had you seen the film before i had and but I, yeah. it, a long time ago it and, bears repeating you know i well the joke is this is, it used to be a, a hard film to find and i don't know if it still is and i remember it took me a long time to 
find a used DVD of it. And then I asked you if you needed it and you actually were holding onto a copy too. So I thought, okay, we're that rare duo of people who immediately have access to a DVD of Conspirators of Pleasure. So um, Jan Svankmeyer, who's still with us, I uh, made a film two years ago, which he said might be his last, it would be his last, but you never know. Um, we, we both picked old, old filmmakers who've been at it since the 60s. How about that? Um, Jan Svankmeyer began as a true sort of stop motion animator in the country known as Czechoslovakia. He made a lot of interesting short films that uh, were very, um, what can I say, tactile. They were, uh, you know, he worked a lot with his wife, Eva, who is also, uh, who sort of serves as production designer, all the physical objects that are in there. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, very interesting, really fun, crunchy little short films. And then he became a feature film animator and when I say animation, I mean, he incorporates stop motion and live action together. Um, but his first film was called Alice, and it was an Alice in Wonderland movie. Then his second film was called Faust, and it was take on the Faust story. And this is his third feature called Conspirators of Pleasure. And it has no true antecedent. I kept thinking, is this some sort of European folk tale or something? Uh, by the way, the funniest thing I could do for you right now is read you the Google synopsis of this movie. Because I kept thinking, how do you summarize what this movie is? So let me tell you how Google describes this movie. And by the way, it starts off with this, this amazing sentence. Six Prague residents pursue bizarre rituals. <laughs> That's it. That's the movie in six words. Um, uh, here's, the, here's the longer version. Mr. Peony builds a chicken costume to wear while enacting homicidal fantasies toward neighbor, Mrs. Lubalova, who does the same just as a dominatrix. Their mail carrier, Mrs. Malkova, inhales tiny balls of bread. Newspaper operator, Mr. Kula, obsessively watches the broadcasts of news anchor, Mrs. Beltinska, whose husband regularly scrubs his body. That's what the movie is. <laughs> But it's really about these six people in Prague who uh, have a public life. One is a newscaster, one's a postal delivery person, one runs a shop, um, while always, uh, while secretly enacting uh, rituals of comfort, conspiracy, you know, uh, conspiring to pleasure themselves. And uh, they're, they, they start small and they get big. You know, the postal carrier likes to take loaves of bread and take the insides out and roll them into tiny balls. And you're like, okay, that's weird. And then she uh, inhales them through hoses up her nose and in her ears and then sleeps with them and then shoots them out of her body the next morning. That's her trip. Uh, while somebody else creates a hugging machine that he can use to pleasure himself while watching a newscaster. And while he's orgasming watching her, she's having an orgasm um, while um, carp uh, suck on her feet. Suck so um, yeah. it, it's a movie that's um, precious and fetishistic, but not really erotic. It's, the movie's not really much of a turn on, even though it, it does have a lot of that kind of pleasuring to it. What was your take on it? Uh, you know, I thought it was... I, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting because it, it's, it's dedicated to the things. If you're into films and you're into, you're into, into uh, what you would call surrealism in films, it, it really wears 
the famous ones on its sleeve, especially Bunuel's movies uh, uh, that are that are really clear. Uh, and so that 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 immediately starts to be there. Of course, it's that, that you see you see it's dedicated or it's dedicated or it's drawn from or it's thanks. Every uh, uh, Marquis de Sade, Bunuel, everything everything that you would see in there is is thanked, but thanked by the end. You go, oh, yeah, of course, Sigmund Freud. And and uh, but it has but it has. Um, uh, what I would say is, is it's interesting in the way that it draws a connection between all of them. And so it's surrealism. And in a way, it's a single field. The one they're, they're pleasuring themselves, but they're all pleasuring each other. They're all in somewhat relation. The fish, the carp that, that suck her toes are fed with the balls that, that are ejected by the male person. The husband, you know, there's the, there's the guy that masturbates with the masturbation machine watching the newscaster, but the newscaster is the woman with the fish on the toes, right? And the other guy is the inspector. He's related to the thing. And of course, he, he has, you know, he has this particular sort of, particularly sort of masochistic kind of thing with nails and, and he's got a thing with animal pelts. Uh, and, and there's a connection there because, you know, he's finding the pelts in different places and, uh, that are related to the other two, you know, they, they come up across each other. So in a way their lives are, are intertwined. I mean, you don't see them in that. It, it is, it is a climactic film. It has what, what's you know, what is famous in a lot of movies, which is the, which is a movie that builds to climax. So it's a sexual movie. And as much as they all are, all, they break out, they break, it breaks into animation. At the at, right, as they're all coming to the head of their fantasy, you get to see what the fantasies are. They well, have dolls the, each other, and they do the between the two movies. Is that this movie is also autobiographical because it's an animator making a film about bringing things to life, and yeah. it's not just merely fantasy becoming reality. And it reminded me, uh, so like that Soderbergh thing. Everybody, every filmmaker is pulling off a caper, so why not make a film about a caper? Mm -hmm. He and his wife and all the other people were constantly in these small rooms bringing these fantasies to life. And I'm sure they, he just came up with this. It's very much like a folktale or a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. it, by the way, it, you know, it's also crazy. You can go this long describing the movie and you don't have to mention that there's no dialogue. Right. Absolutely. Like it's a, it's a film that sort of like, Sort of like Jacques Tati, it's not a silent film per se. There's sound effects oh, no, in it. Very sound. In particular, the sound, the soundtrack, the sound effects are pumped up. Anytime somebody clicks a pen or licks something or you know applies glue, like all the tiny physical activities that they do in order to um, gratify themselves. Um, in a tactile manner are very audible. So it's very much a kind of a lip smacking movie in that regard. I was reminded, I'd forgotten about this, but a couple of years ago, uh, Svankmeyer was raising money for his last movie. And I gave some money to his Indiegogo campaign and they sent you his manifesto for filmmaking. Oh, okay. So um, he says this, he says, use animation as a magical operation animation isn't about making inanimate objects move it's about bringing them to life hmm. uh, yeah, go ahead i just think it's i think it's wonderful because it's really not you know this isn't like uh some sort of golem story about people bringing something to life like they all have these alter egos the guy dresses up as a chicken so that he can get involved in this imagined 
erotic, um, you know, uh, dangerous seduction of his neighbor, who is also simultaneously dressing as a dominatrix so she can whip and abuse him in effigy. Right. Right. And then the newscaster and her most ardent fan are both getting off without actually notifying each other. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And yeah, and and, uh, but you know, the sound thing is important. The the sound thing, I think, it's anything that 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 gives that gives, as you say, the sense of touch or tactile tactile sense. Those sounds are used. But you know, he has also these great. You know, both of these movies. Unlike last week, where the music was not that special, are very special and very heavily, very heavily important on the music end, I think. And, and wonderful, wonderful uses of it. Actually, the Svankmeyer use of it is not different than Godard's music. In Godard's musical usage, it's never something that is in the background that you don't notice it is amplifying. It's something that's really foregrounded. It's either too loud or too slow. It's always been like that, too, even in the early 60s versions. And it cuts off abruptly. It'll be in the middle of a thing, or just come like the record just stops there, out of loud to totally silent, or out of or some other kind of noise. So uh, they both have that interesting feature to the to the music usages. So there's and there's theme, there's themes for all the characters, which is rather amusing because he uses off in this case using opera. There's a bunch of opera. There's, there's stuff in the early on Cavallo. And I mean, I mean that one that one uh, sort of uh, high note that they keep using again and again on the dude. It's like Frau Blucher in yeah. Young Frank. <laughs> yes. Like it's like you're going to keep doing that every time and you're going to laugh more every time it comes back. I thought that was really wonderful. But yeah, there's little musical themes for each of the characters, right? Yeah. That sort yeah. of underlie their obsessions. Hey, I meant to say before, you know, this is clearly a movie that climaxes, but it's not a movie with a lot of conflict. Yeah. Desire their desires are all fulfilled. Yeah. There's no sense that the, we know, like in, in an American film, each of them would have a desire and something standing in the way of it. And the film would culminate in them overcoming their obstacles in order to achieve the desire or perhaps failing to. Yeah. There's nothing really that stands in their way. This is just a kind of um, uh, constantly enacted ritual. It just sort of, like I always say, the two questions are like, what happens next and like, why? And this is a film that operates on what exactly is going on here. Yeah. And, and by, the time, by the time you figure out what's going on, the movie's over. It's like, uh, it's, I sometimes say it's like a short story where, you know, a short story can merely be the world revealed. Like, oh, that's what, that's what the deal is. Whereas a novel, you might think, has to like take you somewhere. Yeah. And this movie also falls under the category of a short movie because I, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a perfect movie. I adore it. And I, I watch it whenever I can. And I just think, I don't know, but it's also, I wouldn't say it's impervious to criticism. It's just so perfectly explanatory that you absolutely get what the point of the movie is yeah. without anybody having to say anything. And you think you're just riveted by what's going on. Like, sure. but not because there's a manufactured conflict in it. Like, um, it's like it has the girl, but not the gun. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, of course, I, I think these things are interesting about the sort of, um, e- 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 
things are very were very effortlessly subversive in the background that he came from. In fact, he was banned by the Communist Party, <laughs> you know, or he basically was shut down on on his ideas by the Communist Party and had to had to give out at one point. And a lot in the, in those sorts of places, it's not really like, you know. The, the parts of the parts of your film that are subversive aren't the erotic moral parts. They they tend to be have been considered things that were dangerous to the political regime at the time for other reasons, for ideological reasons that the regimes had had ideas at the time. And so it lends to a different idea in a lot of these places about what uh, what you have to overstate as subversive. But we're talking about a guy. He was you know there's interesting things about Spankmeyer, of course, because you know he. he he was with he's he'd been a part of a surrealist movement that was declared itself in the early seventies or nineteen seventy or something, and uh, and uh, and they and they definitely had ideas like this. But I think it's I think it's just that. But at the same time, they they, they do you know he does do a tongue in cheek thing. I mean, it's very funny because it starts with the obvious, the most obvious layers of repression, which he repeats, which is a guy going to buy some piece of you know a porno magazine at the store and he sort of leafs through it really obviously and then realizes he's being watched and as though as it's as though as though this was going to be the the thematic of 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 what the of what's of what the uh perversions are of course you know which is right. really funny and of course he, every time and it has very fun the very funny moment which is that which is that he always pays and doesn't take the change he runs out the door with the magazine but of right. course these are you know, these are very minor. In other words, they're they're. It's a kind of you could say it's a kind of MacGuffin. It's a kind of useless piece of information relative to the yeah, relative like to thing, matter, yeah. relative to the thing that's going on. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, just on a, uh, two things on a film note, but one was uh, uh, I didn't realize there was a connection with him and Milos Forman because they were uh, they were both part of a a, a, a theater. Uh, Program a radical theater thing in Czechoslovakia, uh, Foreman before, but then, uh, but him, they're both part of the same organization. I, did you know that? I didn't, but you know, it's a, uh, I don't want to say it's a small world, but they were all sort of operating around each other. I mean, animators have a, have a lonelier existence in the long run. They're less, you know, like uh, you don't need to rob a bank to make a movie like Svankmeyer does. So mm -hmm. this is a movie about people in isolation. Uh, but I don't know more about it. Did they work together? I'm not sure if they worked together, but they were definitely part of this organization. It was a big thing. I know they, they definitely had lead lead roles in this in this uh, theater organization there. That's very big. That, that clearly was doing very well on and off. Uh, and um, I couldn't tell. I was having trouble working out whether they were whether they were ever working together simultaneously. But I I don't think so because I think I think Foreman was already in the United States when Spunkmeyer got involved with them. Um, but it's possible that they might have done something. But I, I think the other thing I was going to say is, incidentally, if anybody wants to know anything, I made the absolute discovery because my DVD, for some reason, wouldn't play after a very short time. It froze. And I was really, I, I was a help, you know, what am I going to do? And I found an incredible website online called Eastern European Music, Movies with Subtitles in English. And that's the name of the site. And they're all up there. And you can have yourself a real damn party with Eastern European films. <laughs> it's a great website. I, I felt like it was, this is what I have to offer to the audience. Go to this website and have a party. It's really amazing. They're all up there. <laughs> it's a really, it, it, it's really a great era where, you know, where, where when we came up in the 90s, it was really impossible to see all kinds of movies. When we used to get a, 
Jans Fonkmeyer VHS in the mail that would have a bunch of shorts on it. It was really exciting and you had to pass the tape around. And yeah. now just the idea that like you think about it and you find it, it really uh, <laughs> yeah. it makes the world a lot smaller. Although I did actually just have, um, I did just have a moment where perhaps my favorite film of all times, Mila's form is taking off. I finally am in possession of a DVD of it. Oh, great, great, great. It's really made my life. Maybe we should watch it next time. Yeah, Taking Off is terrific. We have to come up with a theme in which you can insert Taking Off. Um, but uh, the, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting because that's part of the Godard thing too. I mean, Godard made so many films. He's made so many films that and for years, I think part of the reason that maybe happily or not happily for him, but it, no one could really talk about it. So it was so hard to get hold of any of these films. You could definitely get those 60s movies. You could get, you know, four or five of those have always been in circulation because of their popularity and their importance. But what became really hard was seeing anything that went on for 15 years. And then even in the, in the recent period, since the, since the you know, late, late 90s until fairly recently, it was hard. To, now all of a sudden they all show up everywhere. Like, you know, you have half of it in, but you know, I noticed in Criterion, they have a thing called 22 uh, by Godard, which is a great, great little section of their site that you can go to. And it has a good selection of 22 of the movies, just hardly any of the movies, but it's a lot of movies and they're all really good, you know? And, and, uh, and but again, now you can get them all somewhere. Or other. You know, you can find them all somewhere. Or other, which is really well, I'm grateful for it. You know, br- yeah. just this week, it looks like the DVD company Twilight Time is going out of business. And uh, so there's a lot of, uh, Anyway, and in looking at their website, I found out that they named themselves Twilight Time in reference to the end of physical media. Uh-huh. So it's like I'm, I have this kind of not a gold rush, almost like the tail end of it, where I want to go off and acquire all these movies before you'll need a relationship with somebody in order to get it. So I'm glad the Criterion Channel is out there because before that, you better have your guitar films because they could always just cycle them out. And then yeah. Anyway. Yeah, disappear, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I appreciate you watching a movie that, uh, you know, there's some movies that are very stimulating to talk about. And honestly, Conspirators of Pleasure was such a joy to watch, but it really is just... Uh, it's just great. You know, I was just talking about surrealism with some students and I think a lot of people confuse surrealism with psychedelia, mm-hmm. you know, where it has to be like a, a wild, uh, colorful feast for the senses. At, at, whereas you're, it's Falkmeyer, even though he's an animator, um, you know, he's closer to Bunuel. Like, you know, Bunuel has this scene in, uh, I think it's the Phantom of Liberty and I hope I'm remembering this right where you know where there's like a dinner party and everybody shows up and instead of a a banquet there's this table covered in magazines and all the chairs are toilets right and they like they often sit on the toilet and read magazines and one of them says pardon me where's the convenience they point (laughs) him down the hallway and there's this little room that he goes into and he he, he goes in and he sits down and I think he opens some little slot and there's food there and he starts eating. <laughs> and I feel like somebody knocks on the door and he's very queasy. It's occupied. Like, <laughs> you know, it's one of the best jokes ever. And you think like that's the, just that is in and of itself. You know, there's not a lot of Marxist theory. It's just perfect. It's just a perfect joke. And so I think that's what I think about, um, uh, 
Conspirators of Pleasure. And uh, honestly, a lot of his other films, Swagmire since then, little Otick about a tree stump that comes to life, they really do have this kind of folktale basis. And then it really is about his style being applied to a classic tale. Yeah. You know? Like, the, you know Alice in Wonderland, let me do something that uses this plot at its center. Kind of the way that Carmen is part of first name Carmen. Like, let me just give you the, you know, wild woman and the soldier who follows her. You know, like, I'll just use that and everything will be a riff. Whereas this film really is like a riff on itself. Like, it's the, it really is his story. Yeah, it's a very interesting, uh, yeah, it's a very unified pl- plot, though. I, I think it's, I think you're right. It's a, it's a delightful film to watch in a lot of ways just because it's, uh, it's also tied in. It's all, it's, it's a sort of tight tie in with everything in a, in a way, the way it all goes together. Um, uh, you know, so I'm glad you suggested it. I think, I think that, I think that the thing about both of these films is that they're, um, that you get a feeling from watching them. I, I mean, I get, I get very inspired. I mean, just as a creative person, if you're looking for ideas, you're not going to dry up by, by, from watching these movies. It's the opposite thing. You'd be like, wow, you know, you just come out with endless possibilities or what is that? Or I better look into this too, you know, and it's all there, uh, you know, and uh, you know, once you've looked into all the details that you spot or that you had fun with or, or th- think about because of, because they fire on a lot of levels of, uh, you know, both sexually and visually and, you know, photographically and, and in terms of, there's so many different things, you know, that uh, I just think it's great, you know, to really get your creative juices flowing, watch these two films, you know, and they're not long too, so you know, like, you know. That is true. Well, listen, um, I just want to end by saying you went for the small movie thing. I say either you pick the, the theme for next time or you pick a movie and I'll pick another movie to go with it. Well, I tell you what. Since we were going that direction, and we, when we, and we, and, and when we got, and you, you mentioned it somewhat, and you almost might bring it in, we'll go into movies where the music is an actual player in the film, somewhat, where the where it has it, where has it, where has a major featuring, a major feature role in some degree or other, and then this way. I know you can think of some things right away, and uh, you even you even you even brought one up a minute ago. Of course, I did, but I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna let you move first, and you tell me which one you pick, and then I'll pick another one. <laughs> you don't have to pick now. Do you know which one you're gonna pick? No, I don't. I don't. I'm gonna have to think it out, and uh, we'll figure it out. All right, this is gonna be fun. Yeah. Well, uh, Jonathan, as always, it was wonderful talking to you. You too. Great. See you later, Henry. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Double MacGuffin Podcast, recorded in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thank you.